we have five people here at the games with our athletes and you have five people here at the games with your athletes why have you got so many more medals than we have and i think you know the jets team had x amount of medals and the and, and the uh, swiss coach had no medals right and lydia made a very simple answer right and his answer was you have five officials here i have five coaches here you know people view you as an expert but they also need to view you as an innovator and then you yourself need to be saying look if i don't take risks that won't happen you know i had an athlete who was number six in the world at one stage for 1500 meters and people said to me are you crazy doing the things that you're doing with tires and and making him go on over uneven surfaces and all this aren't you afraid that he'll get injured and i said that's how we got there in the first place, right? Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, it's good to be with you again. I'm, uh, I'm getting kind of, kind of addicted to these opportunities for us to chat. With, without an athlete as a specific agenda or with, you know, where you and I can just talk and what, and what that makes available, right, is, is that I can hear your talk about it at the level that you are at and you can hear me talk at the level that I'm at as opposed to having to go, been there, done that, so-and-so's got X going on, this is our protocol for that, <laughs> let's do that. So when we're working together, it's about execution. Now, when we talk, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, how we feel about these things and what our theory is about these things. And I'm just looking forward to this week's conversation about the old ubiquitous knee, right? <laughs> yeah. And we've been talking about these things for so many years, just over our conversations. And we keep thinking this is gold. We really want to be able to share this with people. And now we get to do that. So same, same. I'm really always looking forward to our talks. I look forward to this time of the week. And there's, I've actually been getting some really nice responses, but it's usually through text, people who know me. And, and I'd love to, to get more feedback. Um, leave a comment, guys, what you want to listen to. All of you are important to us in, in your thoughts and comments. But what I'm getting so far is we have a very intelligent audience, people who have really considered a lot of these things. And even if that person is not an expert in biomechanics or as a run coach, which of course most are not, they're really, I think, connecting the dots, as I like to say, with what we're saying, which is which is really cool and fun. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to connecting more dots today. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. It, it brings up something that... Uh requires some vulnerability for me to talk about right and it's that concept that very often when i'm doing a talk or i'm writing an article or you know i'm presenting or you know in in some way trying to pay back what the world of triathlon has done for me right because i mean that's that's why we're in it i i i owe my life to the sport of triathlon i love the sport of triathlon and that's that i often speak you know, from my own voice, I often speak to the naysayers. I'm I'm often kind of defensive and I'm often kind of guarded instead of saying what I really think, right? There's a great conversation that was had by an official from the Swiss Olympic team way back in the 70s, right? And he was talking to Arthur Lydia, the legendary um, uh, New Zealand coach, right, who had all those incredible successes. And, you know, was was the father of a system that led to jogging with, uh, with uh, you know, Bauman and all this kind of stuff and, and, and really, really influential person. And, and he said uh, this, this, I think it was a Swedish official, said to, to um, Lydiard, who was there with, uh, you know, another Northern European team that he was coaching at the time. And he said, well, why we have five, people here at the games with our athletes and you have five people here at the games with your athletes why have you got so many more medals than we have and i think you know the jets team had x amount of medals and the, and, and the uh, swiss coach had no medals right and lydia made a very simple answer right and his answer was 
you have five officials here. I have five coaches here. And to me, very often when I'm talking to a sports scientist or I'm talking to an expert in one regard, they have this desperate need to be very, very cautious where they say, well, the evidence says, right? So I have a friend, Mark Blatches, former world marathon champion, and, and Mark says, I hate having to talk to my patients about hamstring range of motion because most of the hamstring range of motion that you do injures them, right? And so just that, you know, people view you as an expert, but they also need to view you as an innovator. And then you yourself need to be saying, look, if I don't take risks, that won't happen. You know, I had an athlete who was number six in the world at one stage for 1500 meters. And people said to me, are you crazy doing the things that you're doing with tires and, and making him go on over uneven surfaces and all this? Aren't you afraid that he'll get injured? And I said, that's how he got there in the first place, right? And I know it's kind of a long story, but it's that that thing is we're cautious to say things that we believe in because we've got tons of anecdotes and tons of practical experience in that regard versus what research has said, right? It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating area for me. No, it is. And thanks for sharing that too, because I was just thinking as you were talking about, I had a meeting with an athlete yesterday who... I had worked with through high school, and now he's actually a researcher and wants to specialize with kinesiology in endurance sports, in triathlon and para in particular. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. He's going to be at some of our camps with us in the future. But we were talking just briefly about how in high school he was doing these sharpening drills, these uh, these drills that we well, I just got done doing, for example, with uh, with Ben. Uh, as as he just uh, got off of the plane. And I used to get a lot of criticism for that, though. I remember his coach, I wasn't his running coach, I was his strength coach, but his coach was really against him coming into the gym to see me just before a track meet, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but just a lot of misunderstanding. And at the time, if I'm being honest, I couldn't explain why it worked as well as I can now. And that is because I was vulnerable enough to talk with you about it, to talk to John Hodges, other experts in the field, and eventually start getting more of the answers. But it was just at first, it's just, well, it just, it works. And I'm just giving, I'm giving this um, a try because, well, why not? And the athlete benefited from it. But um, you know, that's sort of that exposure or where you feel like maybe uh, you're an imposter somehow, right? <laughs> and, and and you don't want to steer people wrong, but you're right. You know, we have to take some risks, but it's also with um, experience and uh, evidence and education over time where I feel like what we talk about today, we don't think it works. We've been implementing it for years. And so I think it's really helpful. But yeah, it's a great, uh, interesting subject you bring up there because it took me a while before I felt willing to expose myself and have people say, well, that's redonkulous. You know, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Redonkulous. Yeah, it, you know, back to the to the car analogy, right? So you got you got your, your Honda Accord or your Subaru, it never breaks, right? It just goes hundreds and thousands of miles and you just you just have to service it, right? To put in gas and put in oil and up she goes, right? Whereas you have a Formula One car or an NASCAR or something, they break all the time. They way, way faster, all right? And but they are pushed to their limits. And I think that that fits in with 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 that conversation. And you and I have used this language for many years, but for people to understand that within the, the framework of run form, it's a question of distinguishing between a warm-up and a pre-event activity that the coach gives the athlete that is based on physiology, how to get those systems primed, how to get that uh, those systems that produce the energy online. And it's a central conversation, right? It's a heart, lung, core temperature, nutrition, oxygen kind of conversation, whereas our conversation is peripheral. And I think that that distinction that you and I live in makes our job so much easier understanding that this is central work that needs to be done 
this is peripheral work. And I think just for many, many years, uh, the peripheral work was the purvey of the track athlete and the and the field athlete, right? So, you know, Tour de France cyclists didn't didn't understand that. They understood warming up, but they didn't understand activation. And, and it's a word that's gotten muddy over the years. But they didn't understand activation, recruitment, facilitation, and all, the, all of that stuff, right? And yet, if you go back through history, you'll see that great athletes were doing those things. They just didn't know why, but they had the field. They were the elites. They were the great athletes, and they were doing silly things according to the coaching community and especially the exercise physiology community, but they were the best, right? So you just see these wonderful videos of like Kipchoge warming up, coming out of the tent, running down to the start of the marathon, and he's doing boom, 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 all of those little things that we suggest. And you ask him, he won't know what the names of those activities are, and he won't know how in his brain it came up for him to do that at that time, but that's what he does, you know? And, and so... For people to question you who are coaches, who are masters of the physiological, to question you in terms of the peripheral are crazy. I mean, even in the last six months, I um, an athlete comes to a workout and they've just done a swim or they've just had a massage and they come to a run workout and they're flat, right? So normally I'm thinking, oh, I need 12 minutes of dynamic mobility drills and so on. But they've already had a swim. I don't need to peripher. I mean, I don't need to centrally warm them up, but I don't need to peripherally warm them up either. But I do need to activate them. And so, just boom, simple little things. Let's just do little split jumps forward and backwards. Let's just come some pogos forward and backwards. And the athlete does their first stride, and they say, "I'm back. I'm good to go." Right? And where did I get that from? From my good man, Matty Pendola. Right? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, and. I'll share with this morning, I had um, a little bit of time to be able to work on my form drills. Later today, I am going to be doing hill repeats. And so I fit it in where I can, but it took me a long time to really get more towards mastery. I wouldn't call myself a master uh, with the drills, but especially with things um, like happy feet, I'm still working on uh, really letting myself go on a drill like that. But I do know with um, your beautiful Goldilocks principle that when you're purposefully getting yourself way too hot or way too cold with your form, with your position, and then you find that form, you find where that posture, you can hold really good position and let it flow out of you, like we say, that's that's to me the true marker that I know that that drill is, uh, or the form drills that I did in the morning is still with me when I go to do the hill repeats because I can feel that right away, right? And so that's something that took time for me to be able to adjust to and evolve to. So again, I just encourage people, give yourself time to really get familiar with drills and that coordination, that confidence comes through. And I just, I love that process. I'm always learning something new, even for myself, every time I do uh, these drills. So, you know, talking today a little bit more, though, about up the chain, I know we want to get into the knee, and this is a big topic for, uh, for a lot of people. I think we probably have lost count of how many athletes have been told that running is bad for their knee, but now we know with better studies that have been released, especially in the last five years or so, how healthy running actually is for the knee. But uh, geez, I just had this conversation the other night over pizza after my daughter's uh, talent show with a parent and he's training for uh, and, uh, and the uh, Reno Tile Odyssey. And he was saying, yeah, I think this is my last one though, because uh, I'm just worried about my knees and I, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin my knees. And, and so of course, here goes this conversation. And we, we hope that this helps people understand actually how good, what your love of your sport is doing for your joints, like your knee. Yep. Yep. I love to start a conversation off about the knee by quoting a peanuts column. And I don't know if you ever saw this one, but it's brilliant. So, uh, Charlie Brown says to Lucy, I'm going to make my millions out of sport. And Lucy says, but you suck at sport. You know, you can't catch a football. You can't do anything. Why do you mean you're going to make your millions out of sport? He says, no, no, no. I'm going to be a knee surgeon. 
<laughs> so uh, uh, that's a great way to go about it. But, you know, as, as you and I have often spoken about, very often we always starting off with an athlete that has a challenge, right? So we evaluate the athlete and we say, we need to address X, right? So we're looking for low-hanging fruit. We're looking for the, the quickest ways to get in to, to help that athlete be better. Uh, but we are working from a background of understanding how joints function, how athletes function kinematically, how, uh, you know, how, how joints should move. And you and I, we have to slow it down to at least 240 frames per second before what we think we're seeing is confirmed, right? Um, but we are basing that off how we feel that athletes should be moving based on all of our experience and our, and our studies, right? Um, but uh, I find that a lot of people don't understand how things should function, right? So if you, if you look, we've spoken about the great toe and we, we know how the great toe moves and we know what it does. And we've spoken about the arch and the ankle and so on. Uh, the problem with the knee in, in a running conversation to me is that it's, a, it's kind of like a linear joint. It doesn't have a lot of side to side. And if it has a lot of side to side, we've got a big problem, right? <laughs> and uh, it comes down to this conversation that you need a certain level of mobility in running, but it's not a maximal level of mobility. So it's, it's an optimized level of mobility, right? So maybe we just take people through why the knee gets such a bad rap in running, right? Uh, because people use it incorrectly. People use it incorrectly. So if you take this simple thing, a contralateral gait, which is, is the human gait or bipedal gait, right? So, uh, and, and what happens is the first job of the knee is extension to get the foot down to the ground. How the foot gets down to the ground impacts that knee. Right? So, so the, the foot comes through from the back. The quads then extend the knee. Right? But if the hamstrings aren't doing their job and the, the heel or the forefoot touches the ground and the knee is you know, fully extended, we have a problem, right? Especially if that shin is leaning backwards, right? So we all know that we want to get that foot as far underneath us as possible. But what does that, right? It's hip extension, it's knee extension, right? But the hip extension makes that knee extension safe or not safe, all right? So if those hamstrings don't fire, then the foot ends out in front. That's the overstride. The shin is leaning backwards. Now, especially if the athlete is a heel striker, a huge amount of load needs to be accepted by the knee. So it's this whole forward movement. So you know I have this concept called the gather. If the foot is not moving into the ground, moving backwards, there's a lot of stress on the knee. There's a lot of stress on the hip and the foot and the ankle as well. All right, so it's not gathering. I, I like the old coach's analogy is a spin the world beneath your feet, right? So gather the world and spin the world. That's, that's a, a good way to look at that, right? So the first job then of, of, the, of the knee is to, to play its role in the gather, right? So you can imagine if you lift your knee up forward and then you fire your quads, you extend your knee. But if you don't fire your hamstrings, now you're in trouble. That foot's out in front, right? So the next one is the catch or the, or the landing or ground contact, right? And I've mentioned all those things. Your critical one you look at is firstly, what's that shin angle doing when the athlete starts to bear weight, right? They've gathered, so that's good. They've massively reduced impact because they have a gather. The foot isn't moving forward when it hits the ground. It's moving backwards. It's decelerating the center of mass speed, right? So then its first job is absorption, right? And again, as we look at elite athletes at the faster events, 400 meter, 800 meters, their knee is much, much straighter when it comes into the ground than, say, a marathon runner, okay? So a marathon runner has to protect those knees over a very long period of time, same thing running off the bike, all right? So there's that knee flexion. Then the knee continues to flex down to mid-stance. When it gets to mid-stance, it shouldn't have flexed much more than 15 degrees off its in initial uh, flexion to absorb shock, right? Because that second flexion is the loading phase, right? And then it starts to unload as it goes forward. So people realize it's, it's catch, load, absorb, shock, then hold through mid-stance. So that's a very kind of quasi-isometric uh, move. 
and then the extension out the back. But I like to view the extension out the back as the expression of holding stiff against the ground. Now the ground goes away and now that leg extends, right? So there, there is that driving phase, but it's not quite the same as sprinting. It's holding stiff and then unloading that stiffness, which is a driving phase, but the power for that driving phase has been held through mid stance. And as the posture takes the athlete over the top, off they go, all right? So that's how the knee functions, right? Now we can start talking about things like all right, so how does the IT band come into it? How do the meniscus come into it? How does the patella operate? And those are things that, that are back back in, in your world, whether you're the expert. Yeah, so there's there's a lot to unpack here. The knee, of course, just is a hinge joint. And as we go up the chain, we talk about the requirements needed for stability in the knee. And I think um, a lot of people do understand that. And I just want to point out Let's, for example, take a movement like our bent knee calf raise. And if you've been listening to the podcast, that's where we do encourage you to to go back and listen from the beginning up the chain we go so you understand some of the elements involved with the leg before you get to the knee. But understanding that that knee position is in part going to be... Um, continue to to um, to be more set, if you will, in the best position possible by controlling it with your hamstring, right? And so a lot of times people are surprised that I'm looking at knee flexion a lot more than knee extension when they say, oh, I have knee pain. And so you get them into a terminal knee extension where their leg is straight and they're actually fairly strong there, especially that, um, you know, you can see that distal quad around their knee may even look quite strong, right? But if you get them back to that, um, that bent knee conversation where our thighs are more like parallel to the ground or below 60 degrees, right? So somewhere between 60 and 90 degrees and just have them hold that position. They have a tough time doing that, especially on a single leg. So when we do the bent knee calf raise and we look at that in our relative strength index testing, a lot of times the conversation is more around, well, I could not finish the minute because it was, it was tough on my knee. Like my knee was burning and then it was just giving out. Ah, you see, we actually have to look at that flexion a little bit more. That's where range of motion that you mentioned before is so important. In fact, uh, Dr. Peter Atia just released a book on longevity, and uh, there's a, some great conversation here about being able to optimize, as you said before, your range of motion for you and for what you need to do, right? So when we look at that, we probably will not have all the same capacities we had in our 20s, but in my 50s now, my goal is to lose as little of that as possible, right? I think we're always going to have to settle and understand that we're going to lose some, right? But how fast we lose it, that depends on us and what we plan to do about it, right? So doing something as simple as hamstring slides, slippery floor slides, which we of course have in our program for a reason. And I've gotten um, a lot of inquiries about that particular movement. Why is this part of my recovery right? Because we put it in our loaded mobility. And again, because that's actually helping to restore the capacities or the range of motion through our knee in that hamstring slide as well. So, excuse me. So just a, a point to that is that we, of course, want to look at what our, what is relative for our running gait. And in this case, I look pretty closely at that hamstring curl and how well we're able to establish that position. Oh, that's fantastic, Matt. You know, the last three weeks have been characterized by our athletes, given where they are in the triathlon season, the big, the, the races coming up, with these uh, bent knee loaded toe walks that they're doing, right? And that whole concept of, oh my, I can, I can handle this with my soleus, and I can handle this with my arch and my foot. My quad can't handle it, right? So that's, such an important one. And then if you look at the research, even recently in 2017, there was research is that a lot of the knee issues 
seem to uh, come from those lack lack of conditioning in the hamstrings. You know, so that that's that's fantastic for people to see, and it brings back last week's conversation again. We're always coming back to that cadence, right? That the the the, the more optimized your cadence is, the much easier it is for your knee, right? So. The longer your foot's on the ground, the more your knee flex, the more you put it under pressure, the more you put that whole capsule under pressure. But if you have that high cadence, you distribute that pressure. It's the same amount of work over time, but it's just much lighter per, per uh, you know, movement. And if you look in sport in general, knees don't get hurt by overuse nearly as much as they get um, hurt by single incidents, right? And so uh, if you can uh, get... Get runners to understand that that that's how you protect your knees. And you know the research. Uh, there was a study done in 2017 which showed that sedentary people uh, had far worse knees than than amateur runners. Right? Elite runners had more problems with their knees because you know they firstly they're going so much faster and they're doing so much more training. They tend to be the community who had the most challenges with their knees. But if you look at the more modern elite athlete, they're paying so much attention to not necessarily strength around their knees, but that whole isometric power tendon ligament conversation around the knee as opposed to just quad strength, just hamstring strength, and just gastroc strength, you know? So I'm sure I can see this big smile on your face. I'm sure you got a lot to say about that one. I'm always... I'm always talking about isometrics being such an important component in training first. And that's why in our programs, you look at how we start slow, very slow or holding movement so much. And this um, is in our movement library, a movement we're talking about here where you're in that squat position and you're doing your heel raises, but you're holding isometrically in that position with your knee flexion, right? So that is a movement option that we give for that reason. So you can really build up because it is those isometrics before plyometrics. And that's also why we start getting into our form drills in the second month, not in the first month. Um, and I have talked to some people that are doing our program and one person in particular had some issues with his knee and it didn't take long in our conversation to realize that he had really skipped through the first phase. He just wanted to get right to the bells and whistles, which are those form drills you're so famous for coaching. And so I think he went into that a little bit quickly, right? But, you know, again, we're, we're looking at the ability to be able to hold our posture, let it flow out of us. We keep saying that. This is a perfect example of that. Literally, hold your posture first then you're starting to understand what is good um, positions for you and challenging positions. And we talked before in the last episode about um, our habits and you were talking about how uh, you have an, an athlete that is getting frustrated because there's movements that they just feel really junked up on and they can't do it properly. And instead of the Oprah Winfrey scenario there, right? Instead of focusing yeah. on that, right? Oh, you look, this is really good. You're finding out exactly what you need to work on right now. You feel that knee burning or it's giving out on you before you can finish the set. Awesome. There's a really cool piece in the puzzle you just discovered that's going to bring your running forward, literally, you know, pun intended, I guess. Right. So, yeah. So that brings up that really important point, right? That in swimming, the the density of the water gives back so much feedback, right? If your shoulder's hurting in the water, you you know you know that it's it's probably a stroke issue, right? Um, and the same thing on the bike, right? If there if there's something going on on the bike, you know you can feel when you're not aero, you can feel that you're collecting wind. You know there's 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 that immediate environmental feedback because of the speed on the bike, the air density counts so much. But there's not that kind of feedback in the run, right? So, for example, the research on stitches is fantastic, right? Researchers have found that stitches are mostly caused by changes in posture. And why does the athlete's posture change? They get fatigued. They're no longer able to hold themselves with their core in position, right? 
And that's why they get stitches. So you, you take a video of somebody on a treadmill at a certain pace and 10 minutes in, you've got a very good view of their posture and they've got no discomfort. And 40 minutes in, their posture has changed and they have tremendous abdominal discomfort or low back discomfort or you know knee discomfort or something like that. And their posture has changed, right? They pop the top, the chest comes up, the head goes up. Suddenly the loading on the knee is very very different. It goes from a partial forward movement where they are not striking the ground nearly as hard, right, to um, to going upright. And suddenly now their vertical component is much greater. It's much harder on their knees. So people don't realize that, right? So you go from the usual thing, my knee hurts. I'm going to go and see the doctor. The doctor is going to send me to an orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeon is going to say, this is what's happening. We can fix that by going in and cutting and doing all this kind of thing. And in the meantime, the athlete could have prolonged that whole process by having better posture, better strength, better power, better understanding of, of how that functions. And especially yeah. when it comes to triathletes, right? They blame the run for a knee injury. And very often in triathlon, because they run less, knee injuries are sourced on the bike. Right, so you're on a pathway. You held in by the by the clips on the pedal. You're sitting with with your butt on the on the on the saddle for a long time. There's a forced linearity to what the knee's doing, but there's not a decrease in torque as a result of that. There's actually an increase in torque because the pelvis is stuck and the foot is stuck, and now the knee just has to do whatever it can do to deal with those two fixed points. Right. And then the athlete gets off the bike and says, oh, crap, my knee hurts. Running hurt my knee. All right. And so I think that's always very important for people to look at those very subtle things of, you know, how, how are your cleats fit? You know, if you tend to be from a structural standpoint, externally rotated, all right, that needs to be accommodated in your bike fit. It, everything can't just be linear and straightforward. How your body moves needs to be accommodated. Otherwise, you're putting torque. And the greatest place to put torque on, on your body is on the bike, right? Just just lower your saddle by half an inch and see how your knees complain, right? And then just one more thing to bring into that is, is shoes. You know, most of my athletes are really good, right? They just go 10, 15, 20 miles too, too long in a pair of shoes. They're not paying attention and boom, their knees hurt. Put on a new pair of shoes, all fine. So people really need to pay attention to that. You know, significant wear or uneven wear. Uh, is always a good sign, right? So, you know, there's this thing stuck in the culture that you get 300 miles out of a pair of running shoes. Yeah, that's if you weigh 150 pounds and you have perfect mechanics, all right? If you don't weigh 150 pounds and you don't have perfect mechanics, you know, you need you need to replace your shoes more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess we can put in a little advertisement for uh, do run form and you won't have to buy shoes as often and you'll save, you'll, you'll make your money back. In, I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, you know, it's several thoughts that I had while you're talking. Uh, one is I have this huge shoe collection and, and I'm not suggesting I never need to replace shoes, but I, I certainly wear shoes a bit longer running shoes than I think most, most people. And, uh, and I do attribute that to the improvements I've made on my own run form over time. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up though was when you mentioned how the body works contralaterally and that torque, that spiral. Yeah. The, yep. Let's take the elbow to the opposite knee now um, in that conversation. Uh, interesting because I've had a few athletes I've worked with with knee pain. One of the things that have seemed to really help is by actually having them do the Velcro drill where you're actually just uh, taking that reduced arm position and um, we don't say reduced, do we, do Bobby, anymore? We don't say reduced arm, right? But we have that. that. Yeah, it's actually the, the, the Velcro drill is all about a static arm action, right? Yeah. It's just freeing, freeing up the torso to work without the disconnect of the arms being off plane. Yeah, and, and so that, that's something where even when we talked about uh, a lot of people get stitches, something that helped me a lot, and I told you this is, I was, of course, when I was younger, taught to run tall and to have that bigger arm action. And then I had a lot of problems with cramping. And 
ever since I've been running with that more compact position, cramping is just, it just it isn't even a thought anymore. It just never happens anymore. I used to think it was my nutrition. I had to keep changing that. I must have ate something wrong today, right? Um, but, uh, but of course, all the core training in the world isn't going to make a difference if you're not aware of your positions. And that's what, of course, our drills are more about getting you more cognitive and, and then letting that become more automatic for you. But I do want to just briefly talk about with the elbow to the opposite knee, how that's connected, right? And, and that's an important thing that we talk about there, our wrist to our opposite ankle, um, our hip to our opposite shoulder. And so when it comes to the Velcro, I like that because I will get that athlete who's maybe not really setting up really well with their knee in the first place. I'll get them to just get that feeling not using their arms. It's actually better for them to not use their arms and their knee actually tends to feel better. And so I'll a lot of times put in Velcro drill in fractionalized approach in in someone's running like that where just let's go ahead and start off with velcro and then start letting it go and let's do that for a minute and we build off of that but i found that to be really effective but i thought it'd be kind of cool to since uh, the velcro drill is is your baby there but to talk about that and how it actually does help with the knee as well yeah, yeah. Uh, and to add to that, Matt, it's it's brilliant that you put that in there. But there's a step before that, right? Uh, and I do, I do, I have athletes run on the gravel, right? And so when, they, when they're running on the gravel and they're kicking little rocks forward, they have got no gather. So they're coming into the ground, foot moving forward instead of foot moving backwards when they come into the ground, all right? But secondly, when it comes around to the knee, if there's a twist on the surface, which you can also hear, there's a twist and a little throwing of 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 material on the on the on the gravel surface, throwing that material inward. So there's like a twist. They might land slightly externally rotated with the foot, and then they'll turn outwards. And now you can imagine up the chain what that's doing. So when you're running on the gravel and you do the Velcro drill, and it doesn't turn into either the forward slide or the twist, that, that doesn't go away. It needs to turn into that crunch, like that little vertical crunch. That's what you need to, to hear if it's, if it's proper, right? Um, what you've got to look at is, is if they're doing the Velcro drill, but the top is popped, it won't fix it. But if you do the Velcro drill, and in setting the Velcro to your sides, right, just to explain to people, the Velcro drill is imagining you've got some Velcro in the middle of your forearm and some Velcro right just below your serratus, all right, right in the middle of your side and of your of your thoracic cavity, and you stick your arms there. And if you completed the triangle from your thumb to your shoulder, you would have an isosceles triangle, not a ninety degree triangle or an open angle triangle with with a long hypotenuse, right? So. If you do that, but the chest is up and the head is up, then you will still have torque in the knee. So the posture needs to be right. So that that connected comes first, right? And and also that the Velcro drill is part of that connection drill with that contralateral, I hate the word rotation in running because it makes people do dumb, stupid things, right? But that contralateral movement of the right shoulder moving forward and the left hip moving forward and the right, you know, the, the left hip, uh, you know, doing that little contralateral motion. If you don't have that torque across the spine, then what you do is, is you float the leg on the opposite side and it doesn't have a straightforward purchase. It doesn't have that linear release. It has that inward release, right? That sometimes is now have to be repaired by the foot. And the foot is so much more capable of handling that. And the hip is so much more capable of handling that. The knee is less capable of handling that. That's why it's always the, the first port of call. And I'd also like you to just talk a little bit about the whole IT band concept because there's still a lot of misinformation that you want to stretch it or those kind of things which are fatal again, right? They just lead to more problems. Yeah, so we, uh, we actually have somebody on our staff that had a lot of um, IT band issues and it was, of course, 
about getting a little bit more of that uh, side butt, if you will, the glutamide involved, first of all. So that is a great sort of centralizer to me for the hip in the first place. So if you imagine on the side of your butt, if that is popping to out a little bit laterally to the side here, right? That's what we tend to see sometimes with an athlete. And we can have several conversations about why that occurs. For example, if you are doing a lot of biking, especially if you're doing a lot of power in your biking, and we tend to see that we put uh, a lot into that side meat, if you will, of your of your hip down your down your thigh, right? And so you get off of the bike, and now there's a bit of an imbalance, right? So your TFL uh, hip flexors involved there, and so you're kind of sitting in the bucket potentially too, right? And your hips are back, and so we're not getting into good extension anymore. So of course people go to glutes, and your glutes obviously have to fire, they have to be able to engage. What we generally see is that glutes are not actually weak, but that athlete might not even feel their glutes firing if they go into say a glute bridge. So simple part of this conversation is you can test that, you can get into a glute bridge. Do you feel your glutes firing? Or again, isometric, hold that position, allow your glutes to feel that position, allow them to turn back on, and that may help you quite a bit. So I don't consider that to be uh, that you have weak glutes is you're not engaging. And when it comes to the side, but again, you know, you're looking at being able to help to centralize that hip so you can steer forward. And if you're not doing that, you get extra torque in your knee. So a common drill that we like to give, um, instead of just saying, yeah, roll out your T-band where we can talk about how the T-band is so strong that it can hold even a small car, suspend a small car in the air, right? So <laughs> deep and you're going to roll it out. I don't stop people from rolling if they like it, but I just don't want them to think that's the answer. It's, yeah, it's me of the distraction, right? And it's something called DNIC. So as an LMT in my world, that's diffused noxious inhibitory control mechanism. And it's kind of like, oh, you're, you're, um, you, you have a headache. Let me stomp on your foot. How did you yeah, feel? Then the headache goes away. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a distraction. Um, again, if it brings you um, some some peace of mind or if it feels good to you, then go ahead and do it. But it's more about what you follow up with it on, right? So getting in some glute bridges, getting in just some leg lifts where you're laying on your side and you want to lift your leg up in the air, but you want to keep your hips steering forward. And what I'll do is I'll tell the athlete first, after they've done the glute bridges, now you have that feeling, go ahead and get your glute engaged. So the, the, um, that leg will travel back just a little bit through the hip because you're extending the glute. Okay. And then you turn your toe down. So you distract what's called your TFL, which gets overly involved in the hip flexion um, with athletes a lot of times. And again, down through the T-band, it goes into the knee. So we're going to distract that that uh, TFL with our toe pointing down and then lift the leg up. So that's a great exercise to do. And then finally, I would say you really want to get into hip hinge positions. Single leg is what I prefer an athlete to do. Um, I think that's really underrated and I call these athletic anchors. I always try to get the athlete back on their feet and working on that hip hinge position so that you are now tying in that hip extension through the glutes down the hamstrings and getting that more normalized or more optimal what's central for you and your mechanics. So just a single leg uh, toe touch, for example, or um, a tippy twist with an airplane, uh, or sometimes they call it an airplane, not a tippy twist, but movements like that, just fantastic for, again, connecting the dots. And that's what's actually going to um, help to alleviate things like T-band issues, because you're just basically putting too much stress on one area, and you have to get it back into what's supposed to be your main anti-gravity uh, muscle, right? Your glutes there first, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's really underrated. Like I say, just doing a single leg 
uh, deadlift type of movement and, uh, and working on that from the ground up through your foot up, um, engages obviously your calves as well, quite a bit and through the arch of your foot. So again, that's all where the mobility stability standpoint comes from when it comes to using the entire chain now to connect those dots being stable through the foot, mobile through the uh, ankle, stable through the knee and having mobility through your hip in that extension, but stability in the side butt. So there's a good example. I think of that. There's three things you can do for, for something like T-band. And I find like over time that an athlete is able to establish as Ethan, the athlete I talked about before on our staff, as he did, and over time, you're able to build that back up. And it's usually comes from just, again, capacity. We've exceeded our capacity somewhere. Our thermometer was set at 80. We went to 90. We can't just take time off. It doesn't get better that way, but we have to realize that we have to ramp up and we have to understand that no matter how strong we are, we want to consider um, not exceeding our capacities too much and having that planned out so that you're just slightly reaching over capacities. Uh, because a lot of times things like knee pain do come from fatigue, fatigue where you've just, you've lost your, your form, you've lost your posture. And now the knee suffers because it is just a hinge joint and that's where it's, you're going to feel it there, the lower back areas like that instead. Um, Guys, this is a perfect example of how to drink Guinness from a fire hose, right? So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that back because that's that's gold and it's just so important that we tune into that kind of information and, and that's why run form wasn't just dynamic mobility drills, wasn't just run form drills, it wasn't just how to stretch, it wasn't just how to strengthen. It was all of those together and how they interplay. So if we go back to the triathlete again, right? What is Matt basically saying? Your 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 hip flexors aren't functioning properly. You've been sitting on the bike for 56 miles or 112 miles or 40K, right? And you've never got into extension. You've never got into glute extension in all of that period of time. So you get off the bike, those hip flexors are now shortened, right? And so your butt's stuck in a bucket, and with your butt being stuck in a bucket, all right, it's not possible to engage your glutes correctly. And don't get me wrong, you can't walk if your glutes aren't firing, right? The glutes are firing, but they're not firing optimally, right? Because if you fire your glutes hard and try and run, you won't be able to run either, okay? So your glutes fully engage while you're running all the time, bad idea, okay? But just to understand that you need the strength, you need the conditioning, you need the range of motion, all right? And with your butt in a bucket, you're such a quad-dominant runner, that's putting tremendous pressure on your knees. As soon as you get a little taller, your hips come forward, all functions around the hips, right? And around the hip flexors, as Matt was just referring to, now you are that taller runner. Now you are that runner that's correctly stacked. Now you're able to rhythmically engage your glutes now you're taking the pressure off your knees. And that just makes your running not only faster, which is what you want, but it takes a tremendous amount of pressure off your knees. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah, I, I think we'll wrap this up, but just talking a little bit about where people can, can get this kind of information. Again, we're on any question. This is something that uh, we always talk about if you have specific questions you can ask us on there but uh yeah these drills are in run form for a reason so it's it's great for us to get feedback we have athletes doing run form now for the last seven months or so and um and understanding that there's always autonomy and that's what i want to kind of finish with there you notice a lot of what we're talking about here comes down to trying to give you the tools so you can steer your ship and understand that you you are the captain of that ship we're just trying to to give you tools or give you understanding so you can you know where to go right but these these movements i will finish with um a great strength coach that i once interned under he said you know what good training for the knee is and uh, his answer was good training, right? So that's mm -hmm. why just, you know, again, um, following 
all of these principles and really looking at where do you have the most difficulty? There's your answer. Embrace it. Don't skip it. And I think that's just such a common theme where I feel so bad that people can't run anymore because they think their knee is going to uh, basically, well, they need to basically stop because of the knee pain, or they think that it's just going to be something they always have to deal with. And that's just not the case. Uh, I have just been able to be a part of processes with athletes time and time again, where we, we can see that they're running pain-free again, uh, but it's, it's a complex answer and sometimes it doesn't come right away, but just doing good training and following good principles, you may find over time that, oh, geez, you know what? My knee doesn't hurt anymore. Now, was it one thing? Sometimes it's more than one thing or one movement. It's several movements that got you there, but now you're there, so just keep up. Thank you so much, Matt. I'd like to finish off as well just by mentioning you know, run form doesn't fix osteoarthritis, but it prolongs the life of your knee. It improves the function of your knee. It, it, it reduces the impact to your knee. It reduces the torque to your knee. All of those things come along, right? All the research has shown very, very clearly that you have to keep your knees greased and moving on plane, moving the way they should be moving. And there's one great answer on how to increase synovial fluid, which is knee grease, right? And how that is, is to move and to move correctly. All right, guys. Thanks so much once again, Matt. It was great talking to you. Uh, typical of the two of us, we got into the weeds that we needed to get into. We were, we were in the right weeds today. <laughs> yeah, we we did. I, I guess uh, our our podcast being thirty minutes long is 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 maybe uh, not always possible, but I think a lot of good information here, and uh, hope we were able to help some people today with that. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.